Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be in verse 11 this morning. Luke 15, verse 11. And um, uh, historically speaking, this passage that we're in this morning has uh, been titled The Parable of the Prodigal Son. And for a couple of reasons, I'll explain why I really think that's a bad title in a little bit. Uh, hopefully, at the end of today, you'll, you'll see what Jesus is actually talking about is a little bit wider than just um, one son who is wayward. Maybe you've been in church for a long time, and maybe you haven't even ever really been in church for a while, but you happen to know this parable. Some son tells his dad, I want my inheritance, so he goes to the other side of the world, and he spends it all, and he lives recklessly, and he ends up feeding pigs, and he comes to himself, and he goes back to his dad, and his dad forgives him, and he lives happily ever after. It's kind of the way that our world remembers this story. Uh, It's been said that Jesus, though he wasn't a professional philosopher nor a professional theologian, he's given professional philosophers and professional theologians millennia's worth of insight into the heart of God based upon these three simple paragraphs in Scripture. That what he's actually saying in the core of this parable, which I've already told you a couple weeks ago, is not starting here. It started in verse 3. One parable told in four acts. Jesus is telling us it's not just about finding your way back to God. It's it's about actually at the fundamental core of who we are as people. What you believe instinctively about how to come to God is absolutely wrong. Welcome to church. I'm glad that you're here. Some of you are like, well, how can, what do you mean what what I believe about how to come to God is wrong? And and Jesus' point in this parable here is to show us how What we naturally assume about how we become right with God, what we naturally think we need to do, is actually very, very, very much against what God wants. And so um, this morning what I want to do is walk us through this, uh, it's Acts 3 and Acts 4 of this four-part parable. It's the second half of this parable. We've we've taken the intermission and we're back at it and we're going to see here what Jesus is speaking about. Acts 1 and Acts 2, if I could just remind you, Luke 15, we have... This four-act parable, it demonstrates the extravagance and the riskiness of God who cares most about the human soul and is willing to risk it all and diligently seek those who themselves are lost. And what we think in this story is that it's a very nice story about this very great, warm, loving father. But in actuality, when we dig into it, we see that this is an awful story. That every turn in this story, there is hell to pay. There is humiliation. Jesus' hearers in this day would, would be so scandalized by this. They'd be so, um, uh, so angry about this that half of his listeners would go on to plot his murder because of these words. Giving us this image of what it looks like to be lost and found. Jesus is telling us that everything we, think we know about how we approach God the Father and what it takes for the Father to receive his home is not what it appears to be. And so by way of integrity, before we jump in and we look at the text, and all I want to do is just walk us through the story and just kind of shed some light upon the story and pull out some principles as we go along today. But by way of integrity, you know, every pastor is not as smart as they present themselves to be. You know this. You know I'm not as as intelligent or as witty as uh, you may think. And so by by way of naming my sources, I'm, I'm indebted. Every generation has looked at this parable, and I could, I could fill shelves in my office with books written just on this parable. And two, two people have really informed my thinking. The first is Ken Bailey. Ken Bailey's a theologian of a former generation, not too long ago, but, but he, um, I would want to commend to you his work on Luke. And the second is um, someone who read Ken Bailey and then has popularized it today is a guy named Tim Keller. 
and maybe you've read his book, The Prodigal God. If you have not, and you're in a small group, I want you to nag your small group leader right now. Maybe send him a text right now. It's okay. You can text in church for this purpose to just tell him, hey, in the fall, let's, let's study the prodigal God because it's a, an unbelievable couple weeks session and you should uh, dive into that. And if you're not in a small group, let me know because we'll get you into one. Um, but I'm grateful for Tim Keller and Ken Bailey, who I'm not going to cite either one of them today, but just assume that they've said it, okay, just for the sake of naming my sources. With that, let's just look at the basic uh, the basic story, and we'll see the whole point that Jesus has been trying to make about how you and I assume we know how to approach God, but in reality, it's actually wrong. Verse 11, uh, and he said, continuing on, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger said to, uh, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So act one, uh, the shepherd has a hundred sheep, act Two, the women had ten coins, and here in Act 3, the father has two sons. And if you're tracking along, we go from 1% to 10% to 50%. Jesus has multiplied exponentially so five times uh, the intensity here in this story. And, and, and the sheep, if you want to put this whole thing together, the sheep in Act 1 represents responsibility. The, the shepherd who is responsible for the sheep loses it, and he goes and finds it because why? He's responsible for it. And uh, act two, the coin represents resources. The woman has a coin. It's got purchasing power when she owns the resource. But when she loses it, she searches diligently. Why? Because it's her resource. And so she goes and gets it. But act three, we have sons. We've gone from responsibility to resources to the ultimate responsibility and the ultimate resource, which provides life and legacy. And certainly that's what this son is attacking in this father when he comes to him and asks him to give him and divide up the share of his property that was coming to him. And all that we see here in Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32 has to do with this idea of what does it look like for your life and your legacy to be lost. So the younger son attacks the father. He approaches his dad one day and he delivers a speech to him. He says to him, Father... Give me the share of property that's coming to me. And when we read this today, we understand it simply as like, Dad, I want my inheritance. Uh, the other day I was listening to a podcast um, on like entrepreneurs and the guy who founded Panera, which is like my second office. If you ever want to buy me Panera or Starbucks, I'm like there. You pretty much can guarantee a meeting with me if you're like, hey, we'll go to Panera. <laughs> Great. So I was listening to this um, podcast of this guy who started Panera. Before he started Panera, he started this other company called Aubon Payne. Maybe you've been there, seen it in an airport or in a uh, city or something like that. And when he started Aubon Payne, he had zero dollars, and so what he did is he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I know that you saved for my inheritance growing up. Would you help me? Because I got this, I got this idea. It's going to make me a lot of money, but I need, like, I need $100,000, and could you just give me my inheritance early? And the dad did it. That's how this guy got his start. Like, we don't have Panera without this dad uh, saying, sure, here's your inheritance early. And all God's people said, yeah, we're good with that. We like that. I, I like that. And the dad becomes a part owner in the thing, and he's a successful. You get, you get the picture. We're, we're happy with it. And in fact, today, depending on your situation, it may actually may be advantageous to you tax-wise for you to pay your inheritance out early. But in the Middle Eastern world, the, to the people that Jesus was speaking to, to have a son approach the father and ask for his inheritance early was entirely unheard of. For a son to tell the patriarch, give me what's coming to me, was essentially to say, I wish you were dead. I have no use for you any longer. You're as good to me as dead. Can I please have my inheritance and I'll be on with my life? 
Some scholars tell us that no self-respecting Middle Eastern patriarch would dare let his son speak to him this way. It's so offensive and out of place. And what he should have done in this moment, on this day, in public view, would be to publicly discipline and beat his son. And all the neighbors would be like, well, what's going on with Bill? Oh, well, his son asked for the inheritance early. What? He should beat him. Like, that's how the neighborhood was, okay? Like, a little different. It's more like America in the 50s than it was today. I don't even know what that means. I'm just <laughs> thinking about schools, but you can't, never mind. That's what should have happened. The dad should have taken this and, and stopped it. And so what Jesus says, yeah, well, hang on. Jesus says in the next bit, you get a sense of the surprising actions of the father. Look at verse 12. And he divided his property between them. He goes, okay. Most likely against his better judgment, with sorrow welling up in his heart, he gave his son what he wanted, knowing full well that this was the ruin and the end of his son. Both in the relationship that was built between them, how, how, how devastating for this father. And this isn't a dad who's just writing a really big check and handing it to his son and hoping that his son will change his mind. No, this is a dad who, to, to give him this share of the property that was coming to him, it was, it, it, this word right here, it's different than the other times that Luke uses the word property in our English versions, but right here in verse 12, the word for property is the word bios. It's the word where we get biology from. It's the word meaning life. He divided his life between them. See, to divide up his property, his bios, his life, meant that he had to go around and find people who would be willing to pay him cash for his land. And in the midst of a very tight-knit community who everybody knew everybody else's business, and his dad would be going to his friends and his neighbors saying, hey, I'm selling some land. They would be asking him, well, why are you selling it? Doesn't it belong to your sons? And with shame and humiliation and embarrassment, he would say, yes, but my son wants it now. And furthermore, he wants it in cash. So this dad went along and divided up the property. It was two-thirds to the elder son, too, because he, was, he got a double blessing as the eldest, and one-third to the younger son. We could imagine the sheer horror. You know, I, I did a lot of research this week in those, those works, and a couple more that I didn't mention, but we have absolutely zero record in the uh, Middle Eastern world at this time of any father ever liquidating his assets on behalf of his son. We have records of kids asking parents for their inheritances early and then getting beaten. We, we have that, those records. But we never have record of a dad actually going through with it and disposing of his, his property. Why? Because in the Middle Eastern world, world, your land was your life. You belonged to the land. In the Israelite mind, you, you walked into the promised land. This was your ancestral heritage. God gave you a land, and this was your legacy. This was your life. For you to dwell in the land and work the land. And isn't that the first purpose that God gave us in the beginning? God took Adam and he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And, and, and as God put his people into the promised land, he was giving them all the future blessings and all the future promises that he ever could have been lavishing upon them. And so you understand the division and the absolute horror and tragedy in the moment when this father divides up the land and gives it to his son. And this is unprecedented the most heinous rebellion against any father in history, and it's also unprecedented mercy and humiliation for this father to let his son get away with it. And you know how this turns out. Look in verse 13. Now many days later, 
Why? Because the kid had to get out of Dodge. The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed, him, uh, to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And this is tragic on every level. He's free from his father's home, yet living off his father's life. The son makes risky decisions with the money. And for all of our assumptions about this text and what it means to be a prodigal, a prodigal, I've said this before, but I want to say it again, a prodigal, it simply means a reckless one, or, or really the word that Jesus uses here when he says a prodigal living or reckless living, it's the word asosos, it's the Greek, and it means senseless deeds, senseless deeds, senseless living. We have no idea what senseless deeds Jesus is implying here. You can fill in the blank with whatever your imagination goes to, except to say that this guy, he lived a carefree life, very irresponsibly so, and it cost him everything. So when famine came, and all of the, all of the foundational prosperity that he had assumed, it was all gone, he was unprepared and his risk cost him his freedom. And isn't it ironic, in Jesus' words, that this son has searched and searched and searched for freedom and independence and at every turn has yet to enjoy freedom and independence. And all he's experienced is the woeful sorrow of squandering everything. You know, in our imagination, we think about the story of the prodigal son and this story, he, he's off in the far country for decades, right? Just living it up, living the life, living the way you and I all wish we could, but don't have the resources to. And yet, Jesus gives him like three words to describe his life in the far country. That's how unconcerned he is with what he's doing. He says, and he squandered it all. No matter how, he just squandered it all. And here he is, working in the midst of his freedom. For someone who's not a Jewish person, doing a job that no Jewish person would ever want to do. In all accounts, this poor guy, he glued himself to a Gentile in the far country. Once he was desperate and began to be in need. And notice he didn't, in his, in his moment of losing everything, he didn't have the good sense to turn back to his father. No, what does he do? He doubles down and says, no, I, I'm here to make it on my own. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I will get this thing going. I'm going to go get a job. And so he finds himself a friend, a, a Gentile friend. Most likely in this day and age, if someone came to you and said, hey, do you have any work for me? You would never say no. You would always say, yes, I have a job for you to do. You want some help? I'll absolutely help you. And then if you didn't like that person, you give them the worst job you could ever imagine. Because you'd be like, well, that, that'll, that'll make sure they don't stay around here anymore. If your college kid comes home on break and you think they're getting too comfortable, you're like, hey, go clean the toilets, Right? And that's what this Gentile does. He says, yeah, yeah, I got some pigs. You're Jewish, right? Some pigs that need to be fed. And they got food. You don't have food? Well, the pigs have food. Go feed the pigs. In that moment when this man's religion is being challenged and he's giving up his customs and religious practices, even then he goes through with it. Independence, self-sufficiency, 
driving his own story. And here he is, no food, no friends, no family, no house, no land, no legacy, no religion, and no life. And this is the rewards of his senseless rebellion. His, he is obviously lost, we can all agree, right? This man is obviously lost. And I've been in so many uh, church services where the pastor will take an off-ramp at this point to, to have us imagine some poor friend or family member in our life who we consider to be our prodigals. We look down on them with consternation. We say things like, if only they weren't so selfish to put our family through such shame. And we even pray, oh God, even if you have to bring them to the end of themselves to turn around, do it. And that's a good prayer to pray, but it kind of misses the point here of Act 3 in this parable. And I don't want to deny the reality that sometimes kids will offend and hurt and betray and run away from their parents. That is absolutely something that happens in this life. That is absolutely painful. But I simply want us to not skip out on the lesson here. And I don't want to just turn and preach against the immoral living of today. That would be to fall into the trap that Jesus is actually trying to deconstruct for how we come to God. No, rather, we're instead in this moment here not to be compassionate or, 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 or leaning our minds towards the Son, but to actually be compassionate for the Father in this moment. After all, of all the three images in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the emphasis of Jesus' story is not on the thing that is lost, but on the one to whom it was lost, the one who owned the thing. That's the person who feels deep agony over the lostness. That's the one who feels the lostness of the thing. So here's what I mean. The shepherd, he loses a sheep, he abandons the flock because he's so torn up over it. And the woman is literally suffering over the coin that she'd lost. And what we have to recognize here in this act of Luke 15 is that it is the father who knows the depth of agony when the boy is away in the far country. Doing who knows what with who knows who. It's the father who knows the pain of having a son who doesn't understand. It's the father who feels the punch in the gut by his rebellious little boy who had robbed him and murdered him in his heart and left him for dead in his past. It's the father who knows that if ever this boy would show up and face the neighborhood, the whole village would run him out of town for what he did to his father. Both the father and the son feel that all is lost, but the emphasis is more on the loss of the father. His son had ruined both their lives. Notice Jesus continuing, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. It's a good confession. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's an accurate perception. So treat me as one of your hired servants. When he came to himself, that's... An interesting phrase, it, it literally means when he had returned to his rational self, he has a lucid moment. And in the faraway country, his thought returns to his father, namely the ways that his father treats his hired servants. They're always fed, but here I am, a son, I'm, I'm hungry. And maybe I can go back, I can grovel, and maybe then I can be at least a servant in his house. And in our cultural context, we assume, yeah, this is a good plan. Maybe this is a breakthrough moment for the son. Like he's finally realized how much he needs his father, and he's ready to repent of his actions, be reconciled to his father once again, and he's even willing to show his contrition and humility to work his way back into the father's good graces. Yesterday I was at the grocery store with my son. 
we're at uh, Strack and Van Til. And the best thing that Strack and Van Til ever did to Northwest Indiana is buy those, those big carts with, like, the, the cars. You know what I mean? My kids are like, hey, we're not going to Target. Let's go to Strack because they got the cars. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But they also have these mini carts. Like, you kick them if you're an adult. My, my, my daughter and my son, they fight over who gets to push the mini cart around. And yesterday, my, my son um, takes the strawberries, and he slams dunk them, slam dunks them into the little cart. And strawberries go everywhere. They go through the grates even. That's how, that's how hard he slams this thing. And I'm realizing there's no way out of this. I have to buy these strawberries. They're all bruised and whatever. And so um, he saw the disappointment on my face. I think anybody in the store saw the disappointment on my face. And I, I said to him, hey, hey pick those up. And he knew right away. And, and with contrition and humility, he bought back my goodwill, every strawberry he put back in that container as he complied with me. That's how it works for us, right? That's probably the best parenting example I'm ever going to give you about myself in the future. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good one or a bad one, but as, as, as you all are like smirking like, what a good parent he is. I'm trying to highlight for you how absolutely unrepentant my son is. Because in one sense, all he knows is that he's ticked off dad. And he saw the mess that he made, but he doesn't understand why it's a problem. He doesn't understand why I was angry about it. But he had a solution to it, and he had a plan to fix it. And, and, in, and in his repentance, as he started putting those strawberries back in the thing, I started in my own heart softening to him. And that's how repentance kind of works like, you kind of come halfway, and you come halfway, and you'll meet in the middle. And this is actually what the rabbis taught in the day of Jesus. That if you wanted to repent, what you had to do is actually get yourself in a worthy condition where you started to have a plan to get yourself fixed up. And if you would take a step to God, then God would take a step to you. If you would take a step towards the Father, the Father could take a step to you. And, and, and Jesus wants us to see that that's absolutely wrong. This is exactly what this son is trying to do. He's coming up with his plan. He's, he's trying to figure out, how, how can I get myself back into my father's good graces? So here, I know, I'll become a hired servant. A hired servant is, is not a slave. A hired servant is someone who lived in town, had their own house, had their own minivan, had their own mortgage, were responsible for themselves, had their own future. Maybe this son was thinking that he will work for his father and his brother long enough time to repay his debt, and then he'll be free from his past, and then finally that nagging sense of whatever happened back then will be gone, and he'll have a new life for himself on his own. At best, this right here is partial repentance, because he's ready to return home, that's great, but it's convenient for him. And the son is right when he says he's no longer worthy to be called a son, but he's also still scheming a way for him to get his own freedom and separation from the father. So he's going back to the father, not to get the father, but to again get the things of the father. It's like the ultimate double dip. Dad, you gave me your inheritance and I squandered it all, and now I want you to hire me so that I can pay off that debt and then I can be free from you again. So this is his plan. He says, I, I, I'm going to give him a speech. He'll hire me as a hired servant. It'll be a little bit humiliating, but I'll get past it. And then it's just up from there. And so notice verse 20. This is, you all know verse 20. This is the hallmark moment of the whole story. It's so rich with emotion. But while he was still a long way off, isn't that awesome? His father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
Before he could see his father, his father saw him, and he ran to him. One day I'll preach just this verse, and we'll all be amazed at the selfless love of the, of the father. I could camp out on this verse and tell you how unheard of it was in this day for a patriarch to run. It was considered peasants' work or kids' work, even women's work, but not patriarchs. They didn't run. They had robes. You'd have to hike up your robe. It was not, it was, uh, Socrates literally wrote one day, he said, um, no self-respecting patriarch would run. There's my source. I can tell you about how the hug of the father was probably a protective hug because the son had publicly shamed the father. And as such, the members of the community were entitled to stone him to death if ever they saw him. So the father, wrapping his arms around his son, was a way to intercept whatever blows the enemy might send his way and also to send a public signal that he forgave his son and he welcomed him home and that everybody else should lay off. There's so much here that we can't cover, but we must see the surprising joy in the response of the father. His rebellious son hadn't even gotten his apology out. He still smelled like pigs, for goodness sake. He'd obviously been wrecked by the world and traveled back empty-handed. And yet the father embraces him with the warmest emotion. This is no stereotypical patriarch. This is no stereotypical father. And some people have issues on earth with their, or their earthly fathers. I know that's true. And I repent of whatever I'm doing to my kids as a dad. You know, you know what I mean? Like we just don't, we don't know what we're doing. And for some people who have had really bad experiences with their earthly fathers, to think of God as a heavenly father is really a bad, a bad plan. It seems incongruent. It seems like, actually, I want a, I want a better father. I want a, I, want a, I want a loving father, a merciful father, a gracious father, a, a compassionate father. And what Jesus is doing right here is giving us a father the world has never known. This is a father that, that the ancient world had no concept for. This is a father that was different than every other dad that existed at the time. And different than every other dad that I think exists today as well. And this is our father. He is, he is the good, good father. He gives his son what his son could not get in the faraway country, which is responsibility and worth and life and legacy. All of the images from Luke 15 with the shepherd and the sheep and his responsibility and the woman with the coin with her resources and the son with his life and the legacy, they all find their culmination here in verse 20 of Luke 15. The father gives the son all that the son has ever wanted. He gives him... Look, look at this. He gives him gifts. We'll get there in a second. The son hasn't even spoken yet. And when he does, it comes out different than he planned. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then there's a sentence missing. He, he missed the whole, like, make me a hired servant part. You notice that? He told us that he was going to say it. Jesus knew he was going to say it. But he reached his father and he didn't say it. And some, some people think, well, the, the father's love was so quick that he cut him off. Like he just stopped his son before he could even ask him for his resolution. Maybe that's true. Um, but maybe, maybe the son changed his mind. Maybe the son realized he didn't want to be treated as a hired servant. This is maybe my speculation, but it fits with everything we know about the teaching of the rabbis and the message of the gospel and the culture of that day. And I, I think the reason the son doesn't ask to be a hired servant is because he realizes how much better it is to be a son who is dependent upon the father than it is to be a self-made man. 
say that again. I, I think it's because he realized it's better to be a son who is dependent upon his dad than it is to be someone who is out in society as a self-made person. I've told you a little bit about the parts of repentance of this day were two, two-way streets. And here, God doesn't allow the son, the father doesn't allow the son to do any work to clean himself up. He doesn't allow him to do any work for himself. The father does all the work for him. The father is the one who sees him coming and, and sees him and runs through town, takes all the shame and humiliation. He runs through the gauntlet of all the people who were waiting who would hurt him on his return. He goes and he, with emotion, embraces his son and protects him, and he kisses his son to welcome him and to disarm him, to show him how much he meant to him. And this is a father who lost his land on account of this kid, but the life of his son was way more important than the land. And this, friends, is repentance. To come in your dirt. To come empty-handed. To be caught off guard by the love of your father. To come to God with your plan to fix yourself, but only to find out that all along, he was the only one who was going to do the fixing. And this is Jesus' whole point of Luke 15. The first two acts tell us what happens when a sinner repents, that there's widespread joy. But in this third act, the word repentance is never used, and yet Jesus just simply shows it. He says, hey, hey, you want to know what it's like when lost people repent? Here's what it is. The heaven erupts with praise and celebrations, and the neighbors re- rejoice, and everything's amazing. But, but the Father embraces and does all the work for the repentant one. There is nothing you could do in your own repentance to earn this type of love. It's already available to you. Luke 15 is all about the word. Jesus uses the word twice in the first two acts, but then the deed to see all that God requires is that we give up our own control over our lives, give up our plans to pay him back, simply let him save us. Isn't that awesome? So in repentance, he confesses his sins to the Father. Notice after he's confessed his sins to the father, verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a, uh, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And then five words, and they began to celebrate. He is safe and sound. The best robe, that would have been the father's robe. The ring signified the restoration of the family as a full, full son. And the shoes would have been a sign that this was no servant, this boy belonged here. But the creme de la creme, and I think you would agree with me, is the fattened calf. Like it's not a party until you're cooking steak, right? And um, in this society, in this day and age, um, most of the diet was more vegan and vegetarian. If you were wealthy, you might have an animal that you would for years grow and fatten and put on the Kobe beef plan, and uh, most middle-aged families would never actually kill the calf. They'd just delay because it was such an important thing. It would be such like a valuable thing. It's like the car that's super valuable, the guy never starts up, right? In our garages, we got a lot of people who are collectors of things, like some of you are gun collectors, you never fired the gun. It's weird to me that you would have something that you don't use, um, but the, the calf was kind of like this. In most families, it was so out of their price range to have this type of feast. So only on rare occasions, maybe only once in your life, would you ever kill the fattened calf. And here we see the father recklessly, extravagantly going out of his way. So if you want to talk about senseless, let's talk about senseless. Think about all the son costs this father. And this is how the father repays him. 
He welcomes him with open arms and throws the biggest party to celebrate his son who is dead, who is lost, and yet is now alive and is found. And just like Jesus said twice before, his family and neighbors and heaven erupts with joy. And that's the end of Act 3. Act 4 is a little quicker. It picks up outside the party where the older brother is found working in the family's fields. And I know some of you parents, the, the kid who goes inside and plays Xbox while the other one weeds your garden, there's one favorite, isn't there? And we're, uh, this is what we see here. One brother's out working in his family's field. Verse 25, now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, which drives Baptists mad. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, well, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. We can only imagine the anger that was burning inside of this brother as he heard the news. Like I imagine the compound stress, that little vein popping out of the side of his forehead as he thinks to himself, my scummy younger brother has the guts to show his face around here after what he's done. After disgracing the family and causing us to lose a portion of our land. He's back, and we're okay with it? And not only is dad okay with it, he's throwing a party for him, and he's as if nothing ever happened. And on top of that, the party that he's throwing is the party. Like, who do you think fed that calf? Who do you think put it on the diet that it was on? It was me. I'm the one who deserves it. All, all he deserves is rice cakes and water. Why should he be treated better than me? No, this is wrong, and I won't be a part of it. So Jesus tells us, verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. Imagine that. Your brother, who we thought was dead, comes back and is alive. Your dad celebrates, and you protest. The elder brother stages a protest. He pickets in the backyard, seething for the lack of respect that he deserves. Like, how mad do you have to be to have the party of the century at your house and not go in? Like, how mad do you have to be to miss out on that steak? But listen, this is so important. Jesus is showing us that there are two ways in this life for us to be lost. Some of us are obvious sinners who rebel against the Father in their blatant, senseless rejection of him. And they mock him and they take the things that he's given them and they squander them with their thoughtless living. And Jesus says, yes, that's obvious lostness. Those are rebellious people. But Jesus shows us that just as much as you can be rebellious in the far country, you can also be rebellious in God's backyard. The older brother is a picture of the rebellion of self-righteousness, which is just as senseless as the rebellion of the younger son. So, see, you can rebel against the father in your principles and in your morality, just like the younger son rebelled in his lack of principles and his lack of morality. And to get at what this means, I want to look at what, how the father plays out this scene. We saw the father show grace to the younger son by going outside and having heart to soften towards him and running. And sure enough, we're going to see the grace of the father displayed at the older brother as well as he goes outside. Look at verse 28. It says, but he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out. Again, what a loving father. He cares deeply for his kids and approaches those who are lost, each in their own lostness. And look what he does. And entreated him. Pleaded with him. There's a conversation that happened. I want you to be there. Be with me. Come. I want you to enjoy. 
But the self-righteous, rebellious spirit of the older brother responded with wicked indignation. Look at what he says. But he answered his father, look, which um, I don't know about you, but if my son uh, yesterday with the strawberries would have looked at me and said, look, dad, y'all be like picking me out of Hobart jail. It's not a good joke. I'm sorry about that joke. But you understand the point. Wouldn't be happy about that, right? That's disrespectful. Very disrespectful. At least the younger son, when he approached his father, he said to him, Father. And so you get the sense of high and mighty superiority that this elder brother feels with his dad. He says, look, you. Listen here. Today we might say like this, like, bro. Bro. These many years I have served you. Like, here comes a record of how all these good deeds which I've done, which is what self-righteous people always run to in moments of frustration. Look how good I've been. I've never disobeyed your command. I was perfect. I was exceptional. I'm the model child who, by my good deeds, deserved to have earned your love and your stuff. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And you're like, that's so strange. Why do you want a goat? Goats are gross. His point is, even a goat. I would have taken a goat, but you never gave it to me. Which gives you a sense of every day in the field, what this son was thinking of as he was doing his work. He'd go out, maybe he was, you know, getting, getting beans or whatever and ripping them off and tediously going one after another the whole time thinking, Dad's going to be so proud of me, Dad's going to be so proud of me, Dad's going to be so proud of me, and he's going to give me what I finally wanted. In every pick, he's thinking about his dad, but at the end of his dad is actually a thing for him. So every bean that he picks is actually a reward for himself. He's treating his father like the gateway to his happiness. And you see it so clearly in his protest here. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, who has devoured your property, your, 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 your substance, with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. How dare you? You unloving, unjust, unworthy to be respected dad of mine. And this last part is interesting because Jesus didn't tell us that the younger son had actually slept with prostitutes. I mean, when I say prodigal son, that's what you think of. You know this guy whoring himself around, sleeping with whomever, having, a, having his own version of a good time? But we think that because the, younger, the older son has fed us that. He's, implant, he's inceptioned us, essentially. He's, he's fed you this idea that this is what he was doing, and this is what self-righteousness always does. It assumes that we know the sins of others. Now, I'm not saying that if he did sleep with prostitutes, it wouldn't be reckless or senseless living. It absolutely would be. But the, the point is we don't know. When we assume that we understand the motives of people's hearts, that we know what their sins are, we prove our own rebellion against God, that we think our standards and our judgments are the standards and judgments that matter the most. And in the end, both of these sons are are the same. Do you see it? They're both lost outside the father's house and have to be welcomed back home. One is outwardly rebellious and yet recognizes his rebellion and he repents of it. The other is inwardly rebellious and doesn't see the need he has to repent of more than just his sin. I'm borrowing that phrase from Tim Keller. I think it's a good one. This right here is the entire point of this entire four-act parable. We have the guarantee that the Father will accept us when we repent of both our rebellion and our righteousness. Some of you are looking at me with confused looks on your face. 
That's great. So we'll, we'll unpack this for a moment. We're, we're so used to in our day and age of thinking about coming to God out of our badness. And we, we repent of the things that we know that we've done that are wrong, that displease God. And yet often, like the Pharisees and the scribes, we think we have work to do to save ourselves to make us worthy of being sons again. And Jesus says, no, the Father accepts those who repent of the rebellion, and he puts the robe on them and makes them worthy to be sons. And, and so th- then we're not used to coming to God out of our goodness either. The rebellious, righteous, older brother must repent, not of his sinfulness. He apparently has nothing that he's done wrong, but he has to repent out of his goodness. And here's how this works. His self-perceived goodness is, is the thing that was getting in the way of him enjoying the party that his father was hosting. You could be too good to need a savior. You could be too good in your own estimation of yourself for your father. In the end, this is exactly what the younger son thought. He thought, I'm better than my dad. I can do this better than him. Give me all your stuff, dad. I'm going to go. And in the end, this is true of the older brother. who said, I'm more just than you are. If my younger son came home, I wouldn't throw a party for him. I'd send him back. Self-righteousness. Say, saying to the dad, I know better. Here's what I would do. You're doing it wrong. Parents, you, especially parents with teenagers, you've seen this in your kids. The, the self-defiant, I know better attitude. You're like, so what if I don't know how to use Snapchat? I understand the principles behind it. And you're, this, is, this is not helpful for you kids. And they're like, dad, dad, whatever, dad. Self-righteousness. They don't, they don't think they need their dad. And how that is so true of us church people, especially us that have grown up in church. Many of you know that's my story. Between the two, I, I don't relate at all with the younger brother. I don't think I've ever had a moment in my life where I've like rebelled against authority, rebelled against whatever, or so insulted my family or insulted my God. But that was my problem. I thought there wasn't a shot in hell that God would send me to hell. Sorry for the phrase. I thought it was so good that God deserved to send me to heaven. I thought because of the family I belonged to that, of course, I was going to make it up there. Naturally speaking, I thought to approach God just meant to do the right things. And Jesus is blowing up that perception of us. You want to know how you come to God? You come to him broken and empty-handed and willing to follow him into his party. Whether you're the guest of honor or the one who's celebrating someone else, you're invited in by the Father. And lay down your sin. Lay down your rebellion. And lay down your goodness. Lay down your righteousness. Because neither one of them is actually repentance. Repentance is coming to God empty-handed. See, we work our way to feeling better than we are. And all the while, we work against the gospel. And we're accomplishing the same repentance as the younger brother when we do that. We try and fix ourselves so that when God helps us fix ourselves, we can get his stuff, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, etc., The problem is we're rebelling against the gospel. When we try to do it ourselves, we're actually lost and drowning and fighting the lifeguard who is trying to pull us up out of the water. So we have to repent of our own desire 
and our own, own ability even to do the good things that we do for ourselves. And I honestly don't know how to help you get that concept. But the gospel is very simply this. You're not so bad that the Father won't accept you, and you're not so good that you deserve to be accepted. You're not so bad that the Father won't accept you. Some of you need to hear that today. You feel like you walked into church, and all you feel right now as I'm speaking is just shame, 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 shame. And that father accepted that son, but that father won't accept this son. And I need you to know the gospel says this. You're not so bad that your father won't accept you. But you're also, on the flip side of that, not so good that you deserve to be accepted. There's nothing that you've done that has made you be clean enough for him to say, okay, now you can come in. Now I'm going to give you the rewards. You're right, son. You deserve to be the guest of, of honor at this party. Now the father simply says to all of us, in your messed upness, in your goodness and in your badness, repent of it both and come to me. And this is what the father does. He kisses the rebellious boy before he can even apologize, and he goes out and entreats his older son to join the festivities despite his embarrassing protest. And look at how this ends in verse 31. He says, and he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that I, is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. And verse 33 says, and the son got up and walked into the party. I'm sorry, I just made that up. There's actually not a verse 33. Which... You kind of just close it, and you kind of scratch your beard, and you scratch the top of your head. You go, I, I know this means something. I don't know what it means, though. This is a cliffhanger. And anytime Jesus, would, who would often give cliffhangers, would, would be inviting us to be participating in the parable. And so I just want us to do that now, right here, right now. As Jesus has laid out for us this parable and said, the way that you come to me is not by uh, choosing your own plan to overcome your sins or by even being so good that you think I have to save you. The, the way to come to me is simply by accepting my love. I wonder today, if you can just maybe where you are right now, close your eyes. Just, just talk to the Lord for a second as, I, as we wrap up our service. As we think about our good father who is lavish, senseless, prodigal, reckless, and his love is displayed in his wayward son and his self-righteous son. As we think about that father, we also realize that we are nothing like him. And I wonder today if you identify more with the, the son who went to the far country or the rebellious son who was in the backyard. Are you rebelliously righteous? Or are you simply rebelliously unrighteous? Jesus calls us to repentance, a repentance that is free from us attaining it on our own. Just simply where we would receive the Father. Where we would receive the Father. All the Father wants is for us to lean into the hug that he's given us. How easy would it have been for that younger brother to try and roll out of that thing and try and get away? Dad, you're embarrassed. Just all he wants is for us just to stay there and to let him do the work for us. So wherever you are, younger brother, elder brother, I don't, I don't know. We're all over the place here today. 
The story has no conclusion as a cliffhanger so that we might ask the question, who am I? And how has my father loved me and called me to repentance? And I hope in hearing this message today from Jesus' greatest parable, I, I think that you might, I pray that you might have ears to hear what he's saying to you and eyes to see how unworthy you are to be a son of his and that you might have the brokenness to lean into his embrace, knowing that he's paid the price for you through the death of his son who went through the gauntlet of shame and execution and put to rest our rebellion once and for all, that we might be called children of God.